You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. When babies are born, we have our own expectations of what our lives will be like together. Finding out your child has a disability can upend those expectations. Journalist Melanie Dimmitt's son Arlo was diagnosed with cerebral palsy when he was six months old. Melanie has now written a book with her antidotes to the thoughts and fears that come with raising a child with a disability. And she joins us now to talk about it more. Hi, Melanie. How Hi, are you? Hey, good, thanks. So how old is Arlo now? He's three and a half. And what's he like? Gorgeous. <laughs> the most charming little thing. Um, yeah, so he's technically non-verbal, non-mobile, so he can't sort of sit up, roll over, do much of that yet. We're working on it very hard and he can't speak yet, but he communicates in his own ways. He certainly makes himself known. He's so into books. He's so into music. He's very passionate about his family and his favorite people and his friends at daycare. And he has a very full life. And why did it take six months for him to be diagnosed? Well, six months is actually relatively early for a cerebral palsy diagnosis. Um, he was being watched uh, after his not ideal birth um, because he had an MRI in his first week that did show brain damage. So we were being monitored um, sort of the growth and development clinic at the children's hospital got us to take a video of him when I think he was three or four months old on a white sheet for five minutes just to see what he was up to. And yeah, he sort of arched to one side and didn't do much else. And from that, they were able to tell that, yeah, he probably had quite severe cerebral palsy. And we were given the official diagnosis when he was six months, uh, which was great because it meant we could get funding and start his early intervention. Did you know something was wrong? We didn't want to know. We were told there was a chance, uh, but just to wait and see what the brain damage would mean. But because he was our first baby and because that stuff only happens to other people, of course, it will be just fine. We were completely convinced that yeah, there would be nothing wrong or that it would be so mild it would be undetectable. And you said he didn't have an ideal birth. What, was, what does that mean? It was kind of a non-birth. Like, um, so we were four days past his due date and his movements were a bit weird. And you know how they tell you to go into the hospital if there's anything that feels a bit wrong. So we went in on an afternoon and they had a look at him and they said, oh, we can't really see anything wrong, but we'll keep you in overnight and we'll keep checking on him and we'll induce you in the morning. So they kept me overnight, kept checking on him. He seemed fine. And then the next morning, 8 a.m., we were in the birthing suite. I was just about to be induced. And all of a sudden, his heart rate just dropped out of nowhere. Like, luckily, we were all connected up to the fetal heart monitor. Um, yes, we called the nurse in. She was scrambling around my belly with a stethoscope, couldn't find any heartbeat at that point. The emergency button was pressed. About 10 doctors all ran into the room. And seriously, within seconds, they were rolling my bed out to theatre, rushing me down the corridor and then put me under and they got him out in 10 minutes. Wow. And they put you under for a caesarean? Well, because it was an emergency caesarean. They had to get in there so quickly. So yeah, I had to go under general because I hadn't wow. had epidural or anything yet. Wow. Yeah. Wow. No one, that is 
the definition of not ideal. Yes, birth. absolutely. Um, as you mentioned, that you know you're kind of a little bit in denial. Like, well, I was plenty in denial. Plenty in denial, <laughs> as you would be. Your first baby. Um, did you know much about cerebral palsy? Nothing. I didn't know what it was and I didn't want to know what it was. They'd said that word, but I just wasn't going near it. I just was so convinced that I wouldn't need to know what that was and that it would all be fine. And so I know the book is like a guide for people going through a similar situation, like a a disability diagnosis for their child. Was it like um, the five stages of grief? Like, is it, was it something like that? Totally, but it's a mess. It's not sort of linear. I don't really think any grief is. I think we're moving away from that neat structure now. Um, But, you know, it's not the same grief as when someone dies, but you have suffered a loss. You've suffered a loss of the dreams and hopes you had and your expectations around parenthood and your child. And you do, like, we definitely hung out in denial for a long time. We moved through anger, you know, all of the stages, but they kind of... (laughs) they hit you all of a sudden without warning and it's almost on loop. Like you'll kind of feel okay and then something will happen. You know, we got a second diagnosis for Arlo when he was two. He got diagnosed with epilepsy and suddenly we were back at square one. We bounced back way quicker. It only took us a couple of days to sort of feel normal again after that. But you just don't know, like anything can trigger it. You know, a nappy box, like Arlo's in nappies now that are called crawler nappies I think and I mean the poor little guy can't crawl and just little things like that sort of trigger you and you're like oh and suddenly you're back to square one but you do build resilience and you do come back to sort of baseline okayness pretty quickly (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you mentioned then like things seeing things like that um crawler nappies and he's not Mm. able to crawl and he's three and a half so in a sense, what you're saying as well is that while you become more resilient, the grief doesn't entirely go away. I don't think it ever does. From speaking to parents who have children who are now adults with disability, it still hits you. You know, it sucks that, you know, one mother has a 21-year-old son and she's like, it sucks that he's not out driving, partying with his friends. You know, he's home with us. But you don't feel that all the time. It'll hit you. You'll sit in that. You'll move on. Most of the time you feel you feel pretty normal. Well, certainly from my experience and from what I've heard from the 50-plus parents I spoke to. And does it make any um, difference to you, or not difference, but do you think it impacts your approach to it given at the time when you lost the heartbeat, you were probably thinking we, we could lose him altogether? It's interesting. I wasn't even thinking that. Luckily, I'm really comfortable in hospitals. My dad's a doctor, so my brother and I grew up always playing in hospital lobbies. We'd always been in that environment. And I just love them. As soon as I'm in a hospital, I'm like, everything is fine. <laughs> and the doctors the were all The opposite saying, of everyone totally, else. Totally. Like, poor Ro, my partner, was completely freaking out, and rightly so. But I was like, the doctors are here. It'll all be fine. And they were all being really lovely and saying, we'll take care of you and your baby. You know, as they rushed me down the corridor, clearly very concerned. They were all being calm and professional and saying, we've got you. It's okay. And I knew I was going to go under. So I was like, I don't even have to live through whatever it is that's going to happen <laughs> right now. So I was just like, put the mask on me and let's, you know, when I wake up, whatever will have happened, will have happened. Mm. So I had a kind of a strange reaction, I think, to that situation. Unusual. Yes. (laughs) I think that's fair. Um, So it is a guide in a way to dealing with these emotions that come with this kind of discovery. And 
you he's now a lot older. Was it difficult to go back and write about the first stages and how you moved through them? I was still in them. So I started the interviews for this book when Arlo had just turned one and I was very much still going through a lot of feels. I was still unhappy a lot of the time. I mean, that was why I started interviewing parents. I wanted to know how to feel better. Um, So it wasn't very hard to go to those places. I was very much in them. As sort of the months went on, I found the way I was talking to these parents was different. I was kind of agreeing with them more, participating more in the conversation. I wasn't just saying, help me. We were kind of having like a conversation, you know, like friends would. So it changed and I found I was able to start giving advice and contributing to those conversations as well. I think the experience of chatting to so many parents all over the world um, kind of fast-tracked me to acceptance. So I got out of that kind of bad place a lot quicker than I think I would have otherwise. Uh, My therapist, who I see fortnightly, also helped me a hell of a lot. There's some stuff in the book from her as well. Um, Yeah, but it does. And I mean, there are days still now that it sucks. Like I said, I don't think that's ever going to entirely go away. But most of the time, we're pretty fine, like better than fine. The book, the title of this book, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, I think, or if I didn't, the title includes the words, antidotes to the obsessions that come with a child's disability. What do you mean about by obsessions? The stuff that is on loop in your head. For me, it was why me? Why the hell this has happened? I had a hell of a lot of fear around the future. I was so desperate to just have like a crystal ball glimpse at what Arlo would be like in the future. He had to be walking. That was so important to me at the start of this. And yeah, just how unfair it was, how scared I was, how alone I felt. All of those obsessions were going through my head constantly. Was it a conscious decision to have such a heavy female influence in the book? Because if you look at who's contributed, um, they're mostly women, both the professionals and the people you interviewed. Yeah, I didn't consciously do that. I did very much try to get um, some dads in there. And there are some dads in there. And Rory, my partner, is in there. However, generally, I find it's the mum's who are the ones taking the children to the appointments. They're still the primary caregiver usually. So they were the ones that were going through the fields, certainly, you know, that I was going through at the time. I think maybe a bloke needs to write a special for the men. I do hope that the things in there would help regardless of whether you're a man or a woman. Um, So, no, I didn't consciously do it, but that's sort of – you'll find that – The people blogging about it, the people I was able to reach out to, certainly internationally, tended to be mums, tended to be the women. Do you think that's got anything to do with the way we feel connected to our children before they're even born because they're in our body? It's like you're already trying to care for them and give them the best life and all those sorts of things when they're in your womb. And when they come out, should there be any difficulty for them? there's a certain fierceness that comes from carrying them. I don't want, you know, obviously parents love their children regardless, but do you think there's something in that connection? Totally. And I really feel for the mothers I spoke with who had a diagnosis before they gave birth to their child. Like I can't even imagine 
how hard that would be. Like at least when we got our diagnosis, we had this gorgeous squidgy baby in our arms. But, you know, it's hard enough dealing with the unknowns then. But to be dealing with the unknowns before this baby is even in your arms would just be so terrifying. And then there's also a sense of failure. You know, you blame yourself a lot for not, you know, properly growing a baby or if something happened while they were in utero. There's so much, yeah, guilt and self-blame that happens there for mothers. Um, Now, you have two children, you mentioned. Having your second child, was that challenging at all, given the experience that you had had with Arlo? Yes, it was so challenging. Um, We decided to have Odie pretty quickly because because when they uh, took Arlo out, just common practice, they check your ovaries and they actually found a cyst on one of my ovaries that turned out to be early stage cancer. So they had to take out that ovary six weeks after we had Arlo and they need to take the other one out sort of ASAP as well. So um, my gynae oncologist said, you need to complete your family as quickly as possible. So we had to make that decision pretty quickly and yeah, being pregnant was not pleasant for me. Like we were so scared. There was no reason to be like logically what happened with Arlo was very random. They couldn't really figure out why that had happened. Um, but after something like that happens to you, of course, you know, we were freaking out the whole way through. It wasn't fun. Wonderful once she arrived in a very planned cesarean (laughs) situation two (laughs) weeks before her due date. Yeah, I was not a very happy pregnant woman at that time. And how does it work now? Because having a child with special needs and a young child, like, you know, three and a half year olds are hard work at any level of neurological development. They're three and a half. Um, But having a three and a half year old and an 18 month old, is that right? Yeah. Very close together, very challenging. How does it work in your family? It doesn't always. We're very <laughs> busy. So Arlo has appointments every single day, apart from his, he's at daycare two days a week, which is fabulous. Um, I'm lucky you. My partner, Rowan, works in the media as well, and he works afternoon, evening shifts. So I write in the morning, he works in the afternoon. Uh, so we're either solo parenting or working the entire time, basically. <laughs> it's really busy. Very yeah. full on. Yes. How do you look after yourself? Uh, probably not the answer I should be saying, but glass of wine at the end of most days really helps. Um, I read a lot. I get so much out of my work. Like I love writing and that really is a time when I don't think about anything else and I can disappear into that. I love my work. I have really, really good friends who I go out, you know, for a meal or drinks with and they're amazing. I try and do a bar class now and again. Love my bar when I can do it. Used to go every day. Free children. Wow. Free children. <laughs> not so much anymore. <laughs> yeah, I go to the movies. We're lucky we live up the road from a cinema, so I sneak out once the kids are in bed sometimes oh, and go see a movie amazing. by myself with my feature-length glass of wine. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, so I've got my rituals. (laughs) Um, Do you think that writing the book changed you as an individual? Yes, so much. Yeah, like I said, um, it really helped me. It fast-tracked me to accepting something that I thought was just completely unacceptable. And... Yeah, I know I can write a book now. I wasn't really sure I could do that, but it's 
there and it's pretty thick. There's a lot of words in there. <laughs> a lot of very useful words. I really hope so. I really so, hope you, so you started in a way to help yourself, let's mm, be honest, to, yes. to reach out to other people and understand how they got there. What's your goal now in having the book published? I really want to get it into the hands of parents right at the start of this thing who are not ready to meet other parents. They tell you, oh, the best thing you can do is meet other parents. Some parents are great at that. They're straight there into the Facebook groups and Googling. I was not like that one bit. I didn't want to talk to other people in the scenario that would have made it more real. took me a really long time before I felt comfortable with that. So this book, I'm hoping, can bridge that gap, can offer people a sense of community, can offer them comfort, I'm hoping, and advice and strategies that they can do to feel better right this second in the moment. So, yeah, I'm, you know, and I wasn't even ready to read memoirs or any of these things. I really just wanted the conclusions from the memoirs, the bit, you know, the good bits, yes. <laughs> the what made you feel better and the how do you feel now bits. So, I've tried to ram all that in from 50 plus parents into this book, along with some advice from experts who actually know what they're talking about when it comes to coping <laughs> strategies and things like that. So yeah. I just hope it helps, even if a parent can get one thing out of this that makes them feel better, you know, for just a little moment in the day, I'll be so happy. And what about parents um, who know parents who have a child with a disability how can we help our friends and family who might be going through something? Be there and ask questions. So many people were scared to ask us questions. They didn't want to say the wrong thing. You really can't. Just being there and asking how your child is and not sort of saying, oh, how's Arlo? saying, how's Arlo? You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, not with a mm, yeah, downward, downward like, inflection. Just being a bit careful with your language and your tone around it. But I mean, we've been so lucky. You know, we have neighbours who've left meals on our doorstep and our family and friends have really come around us. So we've been lucky. But yeah, I'd say, yeah, as a friend, just stay in touch, really be there. Don't ask sort of how can I help? Just do stuff, you know, just bring food, just take me out for a coffee, just offer to look after my kid for half an hour so I can have a bath. Just little things like that make a huge difference. Melanie, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us. Thank you for having me. That's freelance journalist Melanie Dimmitt. Her new book, Special, is out now. We'll put links to the notes in this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced by Debbie Ning and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. We'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email us at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.